Welcome to Glioblastoma, aka GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories of GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on the show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided on this show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Welcome to the finale of season two of glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. We have a very, very special guest today introducing my mother, Alyssa Barback. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and to share my story with all the GBM family. I'm excited to have you. So first things first, take us back to 2017. It was September 15th. I left to Madrid because I went to go teach English, right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Dad got his MRI the day before. Actually, everything started September. It was Labor Day weekend of September 17th. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember it was uh, Hurricane Irma. Mm-hmm. And he was very, very uptight that whole weekend. Mm-hmm. And then Labor Day that Monday, he said to me in the afternoon, I have something to tell you. And I said, what? He says, I haven't been feeling well, and I went for an MRI this week. And they found a tumor in the right side of my brain. But I took him to get the MRI. No. I drove him to the place, the stand-up place. Yes. Yeah. But he told me Labor Day weekend. That's when he told me. But I took him the day before I left to Spain. Well. Did I take him before that? Uh, you must have. But he, this is when he told me. Uh-huh. And he told me he hadn't been feeling well. And then I was thinking... Probably for the past year, uh, because he was explaining to me that the right brain controls the left side of the body. Mm -hmm. And he, and I realized probably for at least a year, a lot of times we would hold hands watching television, that he would hold my right hand with his left hand. And then after a few minutes, he would take it off and say, this doesn't feel right. And he'd shake his hand. He says, my hand feels numb. My arm feels numb. And I would say, well, maybe, you know, you've been adjusting a lot of patients and, you know, maybe your neck is sore, and and then I also realized probably for a year he was telling me that he would feel off balance. He'd say, I don't feel right, I feel off balance, I feel dizzy, and, and he actually told me he, he went for the MRI, and they found uh, a tumor, but they, they thought it was very small, very benign. He went to see a doctor, and then the doctor that he saw suggested that he go see a neurosurgeon. So he had made an appointment to go see a neurosurgeon later on in the week. And then I went, I went with him to see the neuro- neurosurgeon. He did another MRI, and then he, he really thought it was benign. So he said, we can do surgery or we can watch it. So... Um, my husband said, let's just, you know, give me, let's give it a couple of weeks. Let's watch it. He was a, he was a functional neurologist, did a lot of uh, homeopathic treatments. He said, I have some things I want to do, some people I want to speak with. I don't want to do the surgery just yet. 
so the doctor said okay and then he started to you know proceed and purchase some equipment and do things on his own and the doctor said well you know I want you to come back in a month we're going to do another another MRI so he for the next month he proceeded to do you know different treatments and you know natural remedies and it was just very very sh- I was in shock because this was some that was someone that was just so athletic, so health conscious, uh, slender, gluten free, dairy free, hadn't taken a Tylenol in twenty five years, did not smoke, did not drink. I said, how could something like this happen to someone that was just so healthy, mm-hmm. and their life was just so health oriented? I just couldn't understand it. So for the next month or six weeks, he proceeded to do a lot of you know natural treatments, purchase different medical equipment, certain diet, and um, he went back to the neurosurgeon, did an MRI, and actually the tumor had grown. The neurosurgeon had said, well, we could do surgery, or there's another option. We can do a a procedure called gamma knife, where the radiation is directed into the tumor, and that could possibly break it or shrink it. So my husband said, okay, let's do that. And that was in November. So we proceeded to do the gamma knife, and then a week later did another MRI, but really there was no change. And then uh, the doctor, I think the doctor kind of knew what was going on, but he did not want to say. Why? I don't know. I just think he just kind of knew that maybe it was growing, maybe then it wasn't benign, but he just, I don't think he really wanted to say until he did surgery. Mm-hmm. So, But we, like back, back, like, Rewind. Like, how, how did you react when your husband told you that he had a brain tumor? I was shocked. I was like, how could this happen to someone so healthy? Mm-hmm. I just didn't understand it. And I think he was in shock, and I was in shock, and he had already gone to see a doctor, which referred him to someone else, and this other surgeon that we were going to was supposedly to be the best in Miami. And uh, so he did the gamma knife. We did another MRI, and I think the neurosurgeon knew that, I think he just really knew what the situation was. And then we did another MRI in December, and then the doctor said, look, we have to do surgery. Let's schedule surgery for January. I don't see any change. And then it was after New Year's, and I remember I said, I said, you know, we really need to make this he, didn't, he was putting off the surgery. I said, you know, we really need to schedule the surgery. And I just had noticed over time, a couple things I noticed, that uh, everything was left side. And he would normally keep his phone in his left pocket. Well, a lot of times he would take the phone and it would drop on the floor because he would lose the coordination. And that was happening a lot. And then he was telling me that he would be touching his uh, computer keyboard, but he wouldn't feel the keyboard with his, with his left hand. Another thing I noticed was that when he was driving, the left hand would involuntarily slip off the wheel, which made me very scared. And I said, look, I'm going to drive you to work and pick you up because this is very dangerous. So I noticed that symptoms were progressing. So I, I saw things, different things were happening. He was more tired. He was leaving work earlier. He was sleeping more, more lethargic. I just saw I saw different things. And so he scheduled the surgery after the new year, and the surgery was January 19th, 2018. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and even then, by that time in January, 
his walking, he was a little wobbly. He was telling me he was feeling a little um, more off balance. Uh, another thing is that he had start, started taking a steroid, a steroid that, his, uh, that the doctor had recommended for him to take, and he started taking that. So that's to take down the uh, inflammation. So he'd been taking the steroid for a few months. That didn't really help either. Um, and the whole time, you guys didn't tell me. No, we knew, right, we didn't know. Why? Because you were your way, and he says Amber's in Spain, and, you know, I don't want to tell her right now this is her chance to be abroad, and he just he wanted you to stay stay and, and enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. So we did. he had the surgery. It was January 19th, 2018, and he went in, and, and the doctor did another MRI before the surgery, and then basically the— the MRI, it was like the size of a baseball. It looked like there was even another tumor attached to the main tumor. I think the doctor pretty much knew. So we went in for surgery, and I was sitting there by myself in this little waiting room, all by myself. And then the doctor came in like two hours later, and he sits down, no compassion whatsoever. He said, just what I thought, worst possible scenarios, stage four GBM, he'll be dead in four months. He said that to you? Yeah. And I looked at him. I said, what is that? I don't know. He goes, look it up. Google it. I I was in shock. I said, I don't know what that is. He goes, look it up. Read about it. He sat with me for two minutes, and then he walked out of the room. And there I am sitting in shock. I had no, I had my iPad. I start looking it up and reading that, you know, it's, it's terminal and there isn't any treatment that can really help. There's things that can prolong it. There was something called Avastin, possibly chemotherapy, but it really will not, there was no treatment for it. And it's basically uh, a situation that is terminal and there's really nothing you can do. So I was just in shock and I just didn't know what to do. and. And then the doctor had said, you know, I'll see him later in the day. And then they brought him, you know, into recovery. And then I went to see him, and he was, you know, he was just very, very out of it. He just, you know, laid there and slept. And I think the next day I said, you know, I said, I'm going to have to tell Amber. I mean, look what I found out. I mean, come on. I said, so I remember I called you. I think I called you. I did call you. Did you tell him you were going to call me? Yeah, I said, I said, I'm going to call Amber. He was still really out of it. And I said, I said, I'm going to tell Amber. I said, she has to know. I mean, this is this is not something that's serious. This is serious. This is not a tumor that they took out. Mm-hmm. You know, so I called you, and I know I told you. And you texted me. Well, I was out with my friends at brunch. I texted you. No, you I said, I said, me. I have to speak to you. You said, can I talk? Can you talk? I said, can you talk? I didn't. And you've t- never in my life once said, can you talk? And I was like, oh, shit, something's wrong. I said, I, I think I said I need to speak to you. Yeah. And then I think I said to you, I said, you know, dad had surgery and that this is what they found. And it's not good. It's terminal. This is what it's called. It's it's not good. And then I know you said to me, well, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to book a flight home. Mm-hmm. And did you feel relieved? Well, I felt that you needed to know. Did you feel relieved that I was coming home? I did. I did. Um, I, you know, I knew this was probably the beginning of a lot of, a big change in our lives. 
mm-hmm. you know, having to, to deal with this. I didn't really know how to deal with this. And he was in the hospital. I believe you came home and went to see him in the hospital when you came home. Or no, you came home. I got home the 21st. Okay. he told me the 20th. So he came home the, the next, no, no. Yeah, no. they sent him home way too soon. Okay, so they came, they sent him home. And he was like half off the bed. They and I was sent like, him home to get him and up? they brought him, had to have three people that worked in the building because he's 6'2", help bring him upstairs and he was so out of it. It took about an hour and a half to get him to lay down comfortably on the in the bed. He just did not have any any sense of coordination of where he was. He should not have come home. Mm-hmm. And I then agree. and then you came home, and then it was a few days. And then he said, "This he needs to go back in the hospital, right?" And you spoke to the doctor. And then we called an ambulance. We brought him back to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I think he was in the hospital for another week. Mm-hmm. And they were started some different therapies, and he was a little better. But the reality is he, wa- he walked physically into the hospital, and he never walked again. Yeah. He, he just never walked when he came out again after he came out of surgery. Mm-hmm. He just – and then the doctor also said to me that they were not able to get everything – and I know the doctor had also suggested that he wanted to do the surgery with him awake because that sometimes there's more chance of getting the whole tumor if the patient is awake. But my husband did not want to be awake. He wanted to be completely out of it. But that was his choice. But he never walked again. Mm-hmm. So he, he came home and he was in bed. And then he had, we had a, I had gotten a walker with wheels. So as time went on, he would get up and walk a little bit. He would come to the table and eat, right? This was January, but he was very tired. He didn't go back to work. Mm -hmm. He, he didn't go back to work. He had someone come in and cover for him for a while, for he t- thought it would be temporary, but he did have someone that was covering for him. And um, he was in bed, speaking on the phone, doing what he could do, you know, sleeping, eating. And this was, then we're into February. And basically, I mean, I remember trying to bring him into the shower and, you know, I would help him. And then I remember taking him out of the shower. He would try to sit sit up from the shower bench and he couldn't get up from the shower even into a wheelchair it would took like 12 times of trying to push himself up i mean his his mobility was just declining his energy his coordination what was like what was that like for you as his wife to see that it was horrible i mean this was someone that was like a a professional athlete that had the best coordination in the world and everyone he knew knew how gifted he was basketball tennis golf he was like you know the star basketball player the best tennis player the best golfer and here's was someone that couldn't couldn't have the coordination just for the daily living and it was hard I couldn't under I couldn't understand how this could happen Mm -hmm. I had something you just can't understand and I think he couldn't he couldn't understand. But, you know, the brain just controls everything. And then as time went on, you know, we, we, 
we had to get a different walker with wheels because he could not move the regular walker. And then over time, um, we got a wheelchair. We got the wheelchair, and we then he was in the wheelchair, and then he would get him into the wheelchair, and then move him to the table. And then, really, as time went on, he couldn't even get into the wheelchair. So by March, so this was, surgery was in January, mm. and then by Mar by I think it was the second week of March. He was pretty much confined to the bed, and we realized that we right we couldn't. He couldn't come to the table and eat. We we could not bathe him because he was big. We could not lift him. We could not get him to go into the bathroom. And then I believe we had decided to go with um, hospice care. Well, you and I went to the center. We went to the center and we spoke to them. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, they explained it went in hospice. And palliative care. Right. They would come in every day and they would, you know, wash him. They would bathe him, uh, clean him up. Uh, They would do whatever they can, but they don't give any medication. But he wasn't taking any medication and there really wasn't... He wasn't going for any medical treatments because he did not have the strength to be even brought to get into a car or even to be lifted into a car mm-hmm. or even into an ambulance. So we we basically knew that that was probably the only alternative, and he was basically bedridden. Mm-hmm. And this was probably the second week in March. I mean, as time went on, um, the, uh, the swallow, all basically all the coordination, he, he couldn't even start to move the other side, and his uh, swallow reflex declined. I remember, you know, just making tons of smoothies and putting the straw into his mouth. You know, like I would just mix everything, almond milk, sweet potato, eggs, like whatever I could, you know, vegetables, fruits, whatever I could order and think of for nutrition because he could not, he did not have the coordination to eat and to swallow. He was basically just laying in bed and sleeping and drinking. And then I went to New York. And then you went to New York. I think it was for Passover. No, no, no. This Sorry, Grandma and Grandpa, if I'm doing this wrong. So then, it was end of March. Right, but he was in hospice and then, no, no, no. no he was in hospice at home. He was in hospice at home. And then we decided to and transfer him to the center. And then we decided, we knew that it was probably a matter of a very short time. So then we're getting into April. And uh, then we decided to transfer him to the hospice center in, in the hospital because we figured this way they could watch him 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So then he was in the hospice center in the hospital. You went up to, to visit your grandparents for Passover. And I was going there every day. He was really declining. Basically, every day I saw him, he was getting thinner and thinner and yellow and you know they knew I knew and um, I think uh, basically they said to me one day they said do you have uh, any arrangements meaning they know what's going to happen shortly and it kind of bothered me that they didn't say we think you really need to stay around you know it's a matter of hours and they didn't say that to me, and that kind of bothered me. Like, if they know, why don't they just 
say, listen, I think you really should stay. So it was a, it was a Tuesday afternoon. It was April 3rd. And I left there at 3.30. And then... 3.45, they call me. They called you. They're like, sorry, your father is no longer here. And then you... And then you called me, and then I guess I got upset. I was like, why didn't they tell me to stay? Because mm. I said, I said, why? You know, I said to I said, I will see you tomorrow. But what they should have said to me, don't leave. And that kind of bothered me. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is proud to sponsor the glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM podcast. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is a small biotechnology company hoping to make a big difference in the treatment of glioblastoma. Using their proprietary nanotechnology, Biodexa is developing liquid formulations of an investigational drug which can be delivered directly and locally into the tumor via an implanted catheter. This drug has been previously investigated in pediatric patients with brain tumors. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is currently running a clinical trial in patients with recurrent glioblastoma known as the MAGIC G1 trial. To find out more about the MAGIC trial, visit magictrials.com. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gametile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the gametiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, menginomas, gametile therapy is a one-time, targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and a far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gametile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gametile.com. Gametile therapy is an FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Novacure is pleased to support the glioblastoma, aka GBM podcast. Novacure strives to extend survival in some of the most aggressive forms of cancer through the development and commercialization of their innovative therapy called tumor treating fields. Novacure partners with the glioblastoma research organization to work together on behalf of patients and their loved ones impacted by GBM. To learn more, visit novacure.com. Rune was built by a team of patients, caregivers, and medical experts, consisting of neurosurgeons, neuro-oncologists, psycho-oncologists, radiation oncologists, nurse practitioners, and social workers who have devoted their lives to treating and helping glioblastoma patients. For anyone navigating GBM, Rune offers a wealth of medically vetted digestible video answers to common questions. Answers are organized into major topics ranging from surgery to radiation to caregiver mental health. Check it out at rune.com. But when I saw him that day that he passed away, he was a skeleton. I mean, he didn't even he didn't even look like a human being anymore. But they should have really, to me, they should have said something. And that bothered me. I don't think Dad would have wanted you there, though. No, but what I, but his father was there that morning. Oh, I didn't know that. His father was there that morning who was 97. They had told me that his father was there that morning to see him and that they had told me that his father had said to him, it's okay, you can go now. Oh, I didn't know that. You didn't know that? And then I saw him 
And then I left, and then he passed away. So it was almost like he he listened to his father. <laughs> I'm not, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's like he, he listened to his father, yeah. and his father said, okay, it's okay. You can go be with your mother now. He saw me, and then he left. So... Yeah, so it's like he didn't listen to me, listen to his father. But, <laughs> 25 years of marriage. Yeah, but um, it was very heartbreaking, you know, because they, they would tell, they told me that his father was there earlier. Yeah. So, but, but they say a lot of times when people do pass away, they want to do it when they're by themselves, you know, but, but that, I've heard that from many people. Yeah. So after that, uh, I was in shock, and then I had to, you know, make arrangements. That was very difficult. You know, make final arrangements. That was very difficult. Mm -hmm. That was probably one of the worst days of my life, having to go when he was in hospice to the cemetery to make arrangements. That that was horrible. What was that like? I was there. You were there. You can explain it. It's just, but just to. It's something you don't think you have to go through in your 50s, you know, if you're in like 70s, 80s, but it's something you just don't think you have to, something you don't really think you would have to ever deal with in your 50s. And then to go and decide, you know, where your husband is going to be, say his final resting place, that's a very strange, say eerie, it's a it's a very difficult feeling. It's something very difficult to, to process mm-hmm. that you just don't think you ha- you're going to have to do at this point in your life. Mm-hmm. But so that was very difficult. And then, you know, he passed away, and then we, of course, had the funeral. And we were driving to the funeral. My car broke. Yeah. We were driving Lots to the stress. funeral. Yeah. And the bumper of the back of back my car fell off. Was half off. Fell on the highway. We were driving on the <laughs> highway with the dog in the car. Yeah. And the grandparents in the car. Yeah, that was. We had to stomp on yeah. the, the bumper and break it off right. the car. Yeah. And go to the yeah funeral. go to the funeral, and that was difficult. You know, of course, you know the funeral and all that. And uh, how did Hachi help you through all of this? Well, we you had gotten the little little dog. No, I said I'm getting a dog. You said you're getting a dog because we, we had had the, uh, a, another Sheltie, which had passed away, Chloe, two and a half years ago, and we never really thought we just we never had thought we want, knew we wanted to get another dog one day, but we just I don't know why I guess we weren't ready, weren't ready, and then when Dad was in hospice, he said, you know, now we're going to get it. We're home. It's a good time to get it. He loved dogs. He wanted another dog, and you had said we're going to get another dog. And I said, "Well, that." I might wanted be- him to name the dog because you right. named the first dog. I named the second dog Chloe, and I figured and Dad should get a chance to name the Hachi dog. Hachi was his actually his favorite movie, which is a movie about with Richard Gere, and a true story it's in upsetting. Japan. It's a sad movie. With very touching for any dog lovers, it's a very touching movie. Um, it's about it's a true story in Japan about uh, a man and a dog and a Kita dog and how faithful the dog was. And uh, the movie is the movie of the real story played by Richard Gere, the actor, and the dog's name was Hachi. That's the name of the movie. So Dad was Dad's favorite movie, so he wanted, we decided to name the dog Hachi. And we got, you came home with a little four-pound baby Sheltie, and she would sit with him on the bed, and she was just so precious, and I think it made him really happy but I think at that point he was really um his illness had 
progressed so he really wasn't able to interact with the dog very much, but I think it really helped us to have, you know, a little dog and a new life and, you know, happiness and uh, precious. So that really, she's been a lifesaver to me up until this very day. You know, she's always by my side, sleeps with me every night, most loving animal and just most wonderful personality. I'm so lucky to have such a beautiful little animal. Do you think you could have gotten through all this without Hodge? No, no, no. She's really special, and I think animals are just so special. And, uh, you know, by myself, I really didn't have a family or anything. And I think the dogs. I mean, I have my daughter. No, my daughter. (laughs) But I'm just saying I didn't have a lot. You know, all of his family had basically passed away. And, I mean, yes, you were here, but... um, I know you went on a trip. Mm-hmm. You went up on a trip after a few months, and I was basically by myself. So I think the dog really helped me to, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Did it upset you that I left? No. I mean, I, I felt that you needed to do go on with your life. And, you know, you shouldn't have just – I didn't feel uh, that you should have to just stay home to be – with your single mom, you know, I wanted you to to do what you want to do, and I, I think it's was important. I'm not, I'm not that way. I'm very independent, and I was happy that I had the dog, and you know, and I tried to go on the best I could. How was the adjustment of being single after losing your husband? Very difficult because when you're married for almost twenty seven years, you're known as a couple, and I was always known as. Uh, the doctor's wife, Dr. Lee's wife, Mrs. Barback, and all of a sudden, I'm not that anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not a couple. I'm by myself, and I was in my work environment. People always knew me as a single person, but when I wherever I lived, I was always known as a couple. Mm-hmm. So it was it's a big adjustment. It was it was difficult. What was the hardest thing? The hardest thing is really trying to accept the fact that here I am, a single, um, a single middle-aged woman, mm. which you know when you're single in your twenties or thirties, it's very different than being single in your late fifties. Mm-hmm. To me, you know, because it's it's different. It's just a different stage, and it's very funny. I always dreaded. Like in, in all my years meeting lots of single people, I used to say to myself, I would never, I hope I wouldn't, the, I would never want to be a middle-aged single person. Mm-hmm. And then here I was, a middle-aged single person. And it's, it's, it's just a very different feeling because, you know, most, a lot, there's, uh, there's more and more single middle-aged people now, but then there's a lot of couples. And it's just, it's just a different feeling. But, you know, I feel very grateful that I have my ballet and my teaching and my work. And, I mean, that really, I think, helped me a lot to go on on a day-to-day basis. Whereas if someone loses their spouse and they don't have interests and they don't have any kind of work, they really are totally lost. So I... I had some sort of a life, and I had a dog, and I had a daughter, so I, you know, it was very difficult, but at least I had some things. How do you feel now looking, it's almost been, it's been five and a half years, which is crazy. Yeah. Like, how do you feel now? 
compared to like five years How ago? How do I feel now? I feel, I mean, I've ex- as time goes on, you, you've ex- you accept more and more, but you realize, you know, I hate to say, your spouse is not going to return. And unfortunately, that you have to really go on and try to make another life for yourself, whatever it may be, you know, just try to keep going and move on. And, you know, you don't want to let yourself deteriorate that you're still living and you really have to try, you know, to make some sort of a life for yourself, whatever it may be, you know. What's the biggest lesson you think you've learned since dad passed away? Even if you're a part of a couple, you have to be an individual. Interesting. Yeah. Like you, thing is, we spent so much time together. I mean, you guys were never apart. We were always together. Weekends, we were always together. We ate together. I would drop him off at work. I'd do my thing. I'd go back to the office. I'd spend time with him at the office. I'd take him home. We had dinner. You Did know, you get sick of each other. No, take my <laughs> take take my bath, watch TV together. I realized that we were just together so much that when he was not here, I wished I had more of my own life because that was very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. So I would I would say to anyone, you know, if you're living with someone in a, any kind of relationship, still have your own individuality. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's important because unfortunately we never know when something can happen. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I learned and now I'm probably the other extreme. I do what I want when I want, but you know, on Hachi's timeline, though. On, on my Hachi's timeline, right? But that's okay. But you know, what I'm saying just you have to have your own life, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever it may be. So that's what I've learned. How would you, like, how do you think Dad would react knowing that we have an entire nonprofit in honor of him? I think he'd be very proud of you. I think he'd be so proud of the woman that you have become, the entrepreneur, because we know um, (laughs) my grades, (laughs) your academic uh, background. Um, But no, I think he'd be very, very proud. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you think he'd be upset that his name is literally all over? No, I don't. Okay. No, I no, I don't think he would be upset at all. I think he'd be very, very proud mm-hmm. of the entrepreneur that you've become and and the businesswoman. And uh, no, I don't think so. How do you feel like being involved with the nonprofit like impacts you? I feel very uh, grateful and fortunate that I can be involved in this organization that helps people and will help many people in the future, especially creating all the awareness that you have created for all the all the people and all the families going th- through uh, the different stages of glioblastoma treatments, because I know when I was, you know, uh, exposed to all this. I knew nothing. I, there was, uh, there was no foundation. There was no Facebook page. I mean, there was just no organization. I there wasn't really anyone I could speak to. I couldn't call anyone up and say, you know, I understand you're going through this. You know, 
how what are you what are you doing there was i had nothing i had no resources whatsoever so i think the fact that you're creating such all these resources for people to connect i think it's fabulous is there one thing that you wish you had looking aside from that like i mean not wish you had is there one thing that you wish you could change maybe something that you did or something that you didn't do in regards to anything related to dad and his brain cancer journey. Sometimes I wish I maybe would have sat by his side a little more, mm-hmm. you know? Why didn't you? I did, but I just felt like, you know, maybe, you know, I just maybe could have done it even a little bit more. That's just how I feel. Is there any advice you'd give to a wife that's in your position now that you were in five and a half years ago? Be as loving and supportive as you can because, unfortunately, your your spouse will pass on and you will be on your own and just be as supportive and as loving as you can and know that down the line you're going to be on your own and you're you're going to have to create a life for yourself, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, whatever it may be. But, you know, no, nothing is forever, you know. Is there anything else that you feel like is important to talk about that maybe I haven't asked you a question about? People grieve in different ways. There's no timeline. There's no one thing to do or not do because since my husband has passed away, I know other people whose husbands have passed away, not from glioblastoma, but from different different things. And everyone's different. Everyone deals with death in different ways. And there's no right or wrong. There's no way of telling someone what to do and what not to do because everyone is different. Uh, I've had different other widows have come to me and say, you know, what have you done? And I, and I have said the best thing I could say is to keep busy, keep a schedule for yourself, you know, because for me, evenings were the most difficult. So I would say, you know, make a schedule, keep to your schedule, you know, don't just sit and do nothing, get yourself out of the house, whatever it may be, get yourself around people, whatever it may be, but keep a schedule and try to keep to that schedule because it will be better for you mentally you know, just do things, do some things for you. And for me, keeping a schedule is that probably something that really helps me a lot. You just mentioned giving advice to people, but is there any really good advice that you got when you were going through that? Honestly, no one gave me advice. Really? No one gave me advice. Did you uh, ask for advice? I didn't really have anyone to turn to for advice because I had actually looked for some support groups there were no support groups in the area, so there were no support groups. I purchased a book or two online. I read that. <laughs> Did you read the books? A little bit. Uh, audible, audible books. <laughs> My mom doesn't like reading. Uh, I listened to that. I did not really have any friends that had gone through losing a spouse. I knew some people that had lost their spouses, but they were a good 10 years older than me. So they were older when their husbands had passed away. So that really, you know, they just basically, they were at a different stage in their life. You know, they were not in their 50s. They were like in their 70s. So it was different. So I basically went through it on my own. 
you know, which was not easy, but I guess somehow I dealt with it. It was very difficult for me to be living in the same place. And I stayed there for a year after he passed away because I just, I just wasn't ready to move, but it was just very difficult for me to be living in the same place where he got sick and passed away. And especially being in a building where everyone knew us, knew us as a couple, that was very uncomfortable, awkward for me. I did not like that. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that you were always like, after he passed away, you're like waiting for him to walk through the door. Yeah, it was very weird. You know, during time I would expect him to walk in and then I knew he wasn't coming. And then I would go to stores in the area and they would say, oh, where's your husband today? You know, I remember going to Whole Foods and they'll say, oh, where's Dr. Lee? And, and like, a lot of people would say that to me because we went to a lot of the stores in the nearby area. And that was very strange. Yeah. I remember the first time I went to Whole Foods, I was like shaking. It was just, it was just very weird for me living in that same environment. But I, yet I wasn't ready to leave that environment. Once you left, did you feel better? I felt better. I was like, okay, better. I'm starting to move on, create a new life for myself, even though it was difficult. But, you know, f you know, some people like living in the same place where they had a life with their spouse. But for me, it was, it was difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's different. Uh, you know, I tried to move some things around, buy flowers. You know, I tried to... Change things a little bit to make things a little bit different, like get some new, get a new comforter for the bed, you know, just try to do a couple of different things that I could. But, you know, it, you know, I did the best I could do. You know, t I say t as time goes on, you realize you just need to move on your, with yourself. And, uh, you know, I know other people, people will live in the past forever, but you really can't, yeah. you know. Well, Mom... Thank you for coming on the season finale. You're welcome. This the show. Okay, thank you. I'm glad I can share my story with everyone. And uh, thank you for having me. Love you. Love you. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. To get in touch with our organization, Visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at glioblastoma research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at glioblastoma research organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week. Welcome back to the last and final episode of our deep dive with Staff Strong. I have zero agenda for you. We did it. We did it. <laughs> you did it. Great we, season. We did it. We Great did season. it. I thought it'd be fun to just chat about life. Yeah. So Colin Gurner, how do you feel after recording an entire season with me well i i can't imagine oh i can because you told me but i cannot imagine the editing and work that goes into something like this but i think it's pretty incredible uh, obviously i watched all the episodes that's how we were able to talk through everything you were on there in the episode in the editing room for hours but like you take a step back and i was thinking about this today on the train over of like what you've done year two of a podcast moving Thank from you. audio only mm -hmm multiple, multiple times the viewership, video, 
names in the space, oncologists, surgeons, individuals who have lost someone, individuals currently fighting that, putting that together in a story, I think is the greatest thing we can do because someone will relate with that, mm-hmm. right? And that's a, there was no podcast about GBM, right? There's two or three now in the entire space. That's there's powerful. Like one billion podcasts. Yeah. There's like some number like that. And I think like two or three are about glioma or like brain cancer. Brain cancer in it's general. Crazy. Two or three yeah. of a billion. Yeah. So I think crazy. it's been incredible to watch you kind of like, again, find a new space, disrupt it, bring people in. I'm excited where it goes next. For me, it was super fun to be able to, you know, chat in each one. But again, I think our little deep dive alone, you could you could be in a, in a house as a family member and have that conversation, right? You could mm-hmm. be, this part resonated with me. This, oh, we need to look at this differently and how we're getting our treatment plan, right? If just one ounce of what you were able to pull out of these individuals resonates with someone, like you've made a difference in their life. And I think that's pretty powerful. Thank you. I appreciate that. I like I have imposter syndrome sometimes where I'm like, what am I doing? I feel like we all have that sometimes, though, because, yeah. like, you know, it's a lot. I mean, Especially when you build a whole nonprofit, yeah. you're like, did I really? There's no playbook. Did I really do this? Yeah, like, there's no playbook. There's no rules. There's nothing. Zero rule book. Yeah. yeah. So that's been fun for sure. You're making it happen. I Thank think you. the more stories that can be told, right, the more people that continue to be added to this community and feel like they have a voice, right? Warrior Wednesday, we share daily during Brain Tumor Awareness Month. Like, getting these stories out, it's like, we had over 120,000 unique impressions just on individual users from May. It's crazy. Just sharing stories, commenting on stories, right? Passing them along because you never know who's the next person who's going to go through this, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't doesn't pick people. It's it you don't know when tomorrow this might happen to you, but if you can google glioblastoma, you can find the GBM glioblastoma aka GBM podcast. Mm-hmm. Listen to one episode, mm-hmm. you're not alone. And I think that's pretty cool. So what's next for Staff Strong? What are you guys up to? Yeah, I mean, we're we're at an interesting point as an organization where we're closing in on being basically event-based and individual donations close to like a million dollars per year, which is still, yeah, it blows my bad. mind to like be able to say that out loud. But it's, I look back to my brother's fight and journey and, you know, he did so visibly. It's not beer it's water yeah but i think it's it's pretty wild to think about how we're 20 year olds in manhattan right a world ahead of us and now again i trade it all to have them here and and not mm-hmm. have to be on a you know podcast about gbm and open up different things but because that's the cards we were dealt to see the ability to be a million dollar annual organization and the research that directly funds is again i'm proud because what my brother went through has resonated with enough people that has believed in what we do. And I think working with organizations like yourself and like, even just when we can bounce ideas off each other, right. Mm-hmm. And collaborate. And, and, and I feel like I text you every day, Yeah, but every that, other day, that's but how definitely we, like yeah. a couple times a week. Yeah. That's how we get to like, Hey, this isn't working for me. What are you seeing here? Right. And so long, everyone's just doing it alone. Yeah. And I think that's, my biggest takeaway, what Staff Strong is doing, is we're collaborating. Mm-hmm. We're bringing organizations together that might not have talked prior. We're bringing organizations that have been around for 50 years, and we're co-funding grants with them, right? Because all of a sudden, if we're going to sit here and say we're patient forward, and we support the family like mine, like yours, who went through this, we have to do that. Mm-hmm. We can't just talk about it, right? right? We have to be about it. So I think Staff Strong, where we're going, what we're doing, we're bringing more people to the table who have the resources, who have the connections, who have the dollars 
that are committed as an organization to fund brain cancer research, and we're funding brain cancer research, mm -hmm. and we're funding new and exciting clinical trials, right? New and exciting drug development situations, right? We're focused on something right now with uh, an inhibitor that is not public knowledge yet, more will come out, but like is fascinating. And when you get deeper into world, we're not, we weren't in the science, we're not in the neural space before this, but when you can get excited about a drug that is taking out a blocker that's affecting 60% of GBMs, mm -hmm. that's something to be excited about because we know who's on the other side of that, the family. I, think I had this conversation yesterday, once, and I think I know what you're talking about. But, well, there's another, another one just came out, which is public knowledge, uh, with um, uh, MSK. Separate. That's the IDH mutation that came out yesterday. It was like national yeah, news. Something else. Um, but a lot, Anyways. a lot is happening. It's exciting, mm -hmm. and that doesn't happen if dollars don't keep moving out the door. I guess right. is my point. What's next for you guys? There's so much next for us. We have a 5K. Yep. We're launching our 5K officially. I think this will be past though the 5K. So we did a 5K. <laughs> Second annual. Second <laughs> annual coming up. Season three of the podcast. What's the plans? Is that public yet? No plans because I haven't thought about it. Yeah, we're getting through this but one. But we're still doing this one. We just wrapped season two five minutes ago. I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. Lots of exciting things that I want to bring to life. Awesome. But my brain has 5,000 things, and I need to, like, put them on a chalkboard or yeah. a whiteboard and Pros be like, and this is what we're doing. How do we, like, what are we crossing off the list today? So lots of exciting things. It's a lot of growth and a lot of, you know, we have our grant, which I'm incredibly excited for. We yep. cannot share more details at yep. this time, but very, very excited to be partnering with you guys on a new grant for research. Yeah. Just like a lot of really cool, disruptive new ideas mm -hmm. and creative things that aren't being done necessarily in the space. So I'm looking forward to it. Good. Yeah. And our only other thing Again, my biggest thing is bringing people together. Mm -hmm. um, we have our annual New York City event every year in October. It started as the first time people got to see my brother mm -hmm. post-surgery, post-radiation, post-chemotherapy. And, you know, I, I look back at that night as we're now in our sixth annual New York City event, and it was just a celebration of life. Mm -hmm. It was an ability and a moment for all of his closest friends. We packed the place with like 120 people. We raised 10,000. We thought it was the coolest thing ever. Mm -hmm. Now it's a $100,000 event, right? Big sponsors, people that come in. But like I still watch a lot of the same people, right? And his old friends who have kids now and are, are moving on with their lives because that's what we do when we are afforded tomorrows and still make the time to come back and, and be at that and you know, reminisce with my parents about, about Jeej. And, and that's one of those events that, to me, is special because that's what it was. It was two kids in New York getting people together, shaving mustaches at an event, and look what it's turned into. That's amazing. I'm very excited for you. Lots of it's cool exciting times. Happening. Yeah, definitely. I don't really know how to wrap this episode. I feel like I mean, it's, it's kudos supposed to, to be you. like a, a your, casual little recording session. Your, your vision worked. I hope... If everyone could take one thing away, the amount of time that doesn't get appreciated that goes in these types of things, someone might just click play for 30 minutes on their transit. You're in the studio for hours making that happen. But, like, that's, again, a moment and a decision that you've made that's going to help a lot of people. And, and that is one of my biggest takeaways of this podcast mm -hmm. as, again, a friend, a supporter, you know, um, you know, a, a fellow CEO of a brain tumor, brain cancer organization is – all the hope that mm -hmm. something like this and just taking the time out of our day to do recaps, right? You didn't have to do recaps. We're doing That's recaps fun. as more time, a fun activity that hopefully <laughs> is giving people even more support and knowledge in their personal fight um, with this disease. Definitely. 
Well, Colin Gurner, it has been an absolute pleasure to Thanks for having me. see you many times throughout this summer in New York City. I hope everyone has enjoyed all of our deep dives as much as we've enjoyed recording them. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Colin, for being a friend, a mentor, and many other things on the list. You've been awesome, and I'm excited for future collabs. Here's to season three. <laughs> Boom. Done.